Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 205. On today's show, we talk about lost Mayan settlements, a British anchoress, and <sighs> Miami. Miami. Miami, Miami, Miami. Miami, Miami, Miami. Let's dig a little deeper, but probably not deep enough for a Miami. <laughs> for a Miami? For a Miami. Just a single one. Did I say a Miami? You did. Let's get on to the show. <laughs> Hola, amiga. <laughs> uh, welcome to oh, the show. Oh, go on, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much Bienvenidos. it. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we're in our, well, I guess we're, I guess as you're hearing this, we'll be starting our third week here down in Mexico. Yep. Um, it's been a fun two weeks so far. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got to say, though, it, we missed the group of people were here. Some people did like a city tour, uh, but I did talk to somebody who went on it and there, there wasn't a whole lot of history on there. They went to some, yeah. you know, well-known establishments and things like that. And some cool, saw a bunch of things you probably wouldn't see just like tooling around the city. But you know, there, I've looked before we came down here, there's like no like historical societies or real museums or yeah. anything like that. Like I want to know about the prehistoric people that lived here. I don't think there's just like a lot of that history, at least yeah. publicly available. You know, if you want to know about Al Capone, there's probably some yeah. weird history stuff because I guess he like owned some property down here and did some shady things because, you know, right. Al Capone and that's what he did back then. But yeah, that's about it for this area. And if you haven't listened to previous episodes and this is your first episode, first welcome. Second, we're <laughs> in Puerto Penasco, Mexico. Yes. Yeah. Right on the northern tip of the Sierra Cortez. Yep. 
and we are parked right on the beach and we are enjoying some winter beach time. Indeed. Did some kite flying today. Yep. Walked down to a tiki bar in mm-hmm. the middle of the day. Yep. Rode our bikes for tacos. Yep. It's pretty idyllic. Yeah. So can't it's complain pretty great. for it's sure. It's almost as idyllic as a former Mayan kingdom, but not anymore because it was covered in jungle. But we found a new one. Right. I feel like every year somebody finds a new Mayan kingdom buried in the jungle using LIDAR. Yeah, because like apparently if you don't know they're there, you can just like walk by them. Yeah. Just well, like any structure in the jungle, you could just like walk right by it and not even realize it. I mean, things get absorbed so quickly and, and it is a topographically interesting terrain it's not totally flat yeah. so it could just like look like any other random hills yeah totally you know so anyway let's go yeah so this article is called vast maya kingdom is revealed in guatemalan jungle and basically researchers have identified and mapped nearly 1000 maya settlements and structures in a part of mesoamerica known as the maya lowlands mm-hmm. and this is on the northern border of guatemala with Mexico in the Mirador Calakmal Karst Basin. Yes. Yeah. It's like 1.6 million acres of tropical forests and swamps and it's bordered by hills and it's basically like this area that we have not been able to penetrate because it is so densely vegetated, essentially. Yeah. If you've ever heard of Tikal, which is kind of a famous thing, yeah, that's on the southern edge of the area that was surveyed for this study. Yeah. So like we knew that there were prehistoric people there and obviously very significant ones because to call is a huge structure but you know we just didn't have a great idea of how many societies were there before yeah and you know early archaeologists used to think that this area in particular was maybe sparsely populated just because they couldn't find any evidence of people there because it was so thick yeah. yeah but now we know and to not make assumptions like that first off yeah and the maya were were just I mean, very populous and very powerful throughout the region for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And you can just assume that they had control over pretty much everywhere. We just haven't found their settlements yet in some cases. So if you find a big, you know, black hole of nothing on your map, ah, there could be something there. I know, especially when you've got like stuff to the north, stuff to the south, stuff on either side. Like probably they were in this area too. We just don't, we haven't found the remains yet. So, Mm -hmm. but through aerial photography and, and, on the ground survey, they they were able to find things that they were not able to find before. And in this basin in particular, in the past like five-ish decades or so, yeah. they started finding more things. And El Mirador, which contains a 230-foot tall pyramid called La Danta. So like that's... Which is nuts. That is a serious pyramid. And it's, it's a huge settlement that mm-hmm. we didn't know about before. And it was just covered by jungle. Yeah. La Danta is like exactly that like jungle covered pyramid that you envision from the movies right like, like you're just like hacking through the undergrowth and all, and all of a sudden all your of machete a, hits a stone yes yeah it's that <laughs> or like like that aerial view of like jungle 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 oh look there's some steps there yeah you know like that's that that is that image right there was there maybe a big boulder that was rolling through a cave and you had <laughs> maybe, to get out? Maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah maybe like not. that definitely could have been in this place. It right. just, it has that look and feel of exactly what you're thinking of in the movie. So, yeah. Well, there's still some unanswered questions here, but a lot of what they have found in this 
little this new area that's this, been discovered like, basin or whatever yeah, yeah were built between about 1000 bce and 150 ce so you've got a you know 1150 year range right there yeah i think up to like a certain point they they had found latanta they had found these bigger structures they knew that people were there but they didn't have a good idea of how much was there how connected they were mm-hmm. and how many like smaller settlements were there to support these larger settlements yeah so this new team of researchers did a large scale extensive lidar survey of this entire basin to find out like what else was there that might have been missed yeah and lidar is essentially it's usually shot out of an airplane Mm -hmm. like a like a big piece of equipment either attached underneath it or even out like a side door or something Mm -hmm. like that but lidar is a is a pretty robust I mean, laser for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it shoots at such a high frequency that it can kind of see through vegetation. It doesn't right. really see through vegetation, but it's got a, such a small, I guess, area that it, it pings back on a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you can use software to essentially remove the vegetation mm-hmm. uh, because we know what that kind of stuff looks like. And we can say, hey, you know, erase this layer. But even that, after they did all that post analysis and surveyed this entire area that still took them years to analyze all the data that they recovered. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like they were able to like really pinpoint what was vegetation and what was structured, essentially what was stone. Yeah. And they could really like distinguish between the two. And this was so interesting. And honestly, it almost like feels like a little bit more of an archaeotech thing that you and Paul would talk about on your, your, Archaeotech show because this is such a like tech forward kind of a thing to do with with this technology. But I was so fascinated by it. I was like, we have to talk about this. (laughs) But they found an extensive network of raised roads, canals, dams, terraces, quarries, causeways, temples, ceremonial complexes, and ball courts. Like all just through looking at the the lidar and and analyzing what they were seeing through the lidar and kind of like yeah. like moving away that vegetation that you can't get through visually but you can get through with the lidar. I got to say I didn't know Rachel took the notes on this one and yeah. I didn't know that she had already prepared a description of lidar so I'm going to read her description here. <laughs> oh you are. Yeah, uh, lidar uses laser beams. Laser laser beams. <laughs> Is that what you've been laughing at over there? From objects on the ground. (laughs) Essentially, what I said, right? But uh, laser beans. Laser beans. I was mistaken. Uh It's not actual lasers. It's It's laser beans. beans. Laser beans. You know what? I have to tell you, we take our notes in Trello, and it's not so great at um, interpreting what you meant to type. (laughs) (laughs) The spell check isn't quite there. It's not quite there, but whatever. Yes, laser beans. Through using using these beans that they put down by lasers, (laughs) they found. 110 miles of raised roads that connected the settlements within yeah. this little kingdom. Mm-hmm. And they called it the first freeway system in the world. That's a bold that statement. That is a bold statement, right? Yeah. That was the one thing I pulled out of this article. Like, wow. Because yeah. like, you got the Roman roads thing going on. They had a lot of interconnected yeah. stuff happening. And then you know, all the, the earlier societies in the Middle East. Like, are you really telling me that this is the first freeway system? That is... Mm-hmm. That's a lot, but, you know, not to take away from it, there was definitely, like, some very specific road structures that they found right. and were identified in there very clearly. If you look at the map, so the the articles that we're linking to, we've got the article that was written 
um, just by journalists. And then we also have the the journal article, sure. the scientific journal article. And if you look at the figures for the scientific journal article, you can see the map that they created, which mm-hmm. it shows like these hubs basically that are throughout this basin. And then there are lines connecting them, which represent the roads that they identified between these places. So it's really interesting because it's so easy to think that these are just like disconnected societies, yeah. disconnected civilizations or whatever, but they're not. Well, and not only that, but, you know, we always do think of the Romans. We think of the Chinese. We think of mm-hmm. the Egyptians. And, you know, a lot of people, I mean, archaeologists are not in this camp because we know we read mm-hmm. these kinds of things, but you, you never really think of the Maya, right? Yeah. You, you never think of them as having these complex multi-network societies. Sure, they've got pyramids, yeah. but that's like, oh, well, that was like right there, right? Oh, and, they're covered and, and, in jungle, so therefore they're not yeah. as like you know, sophisticated. Which just goes to show again that the societies in Mexico, Central America, even South America, and North America, for that matter, were way more advanced than Mm -hmm. we ever give them credit for. It's just that some of the things they were doing either either didn't preserve as well or in these cases was just literally swallowed by the jungle when they abandoned it. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's totally crazy. And... I guess the other thing is that I always think about with these things is, I mean, the Maya had to clear this place out too, right? Now, there were some climatic fluctuations mm-hmm. uh, around this time, and it could have meant that maybe the jungle was not as jungly mm-hmm. when they were trying to cut it back, you know, and <laughs> it, it was a little easier. Not as jungly. Not as jungly. <laughs> Definitely a way right. to describe it, yeah. But they didn't have metal, Yeah. right? I mean, they had gold later on, yeah. but I don't know if they were making tools out of it. Right. So... You know, they're they're hacking apart the jungle. I mean, we can barely get through there with like machetes and heavy machinery and they are hacking it apart with stone tools and whatever they can. And then not only that, but doing stonework and carving and mm-hmm. all these things and, and to put all these things together and and then keep the jungle at bay, too. Yeah. I mean, you need a robust like governmental infrastructure. Like forced. Yeah. Yeah. In, in order to in order to yeah. do that. So, well, it's impressive. I mean, not to make assumptions about what society was like, I don't. I definitely don't want to like wander into the apocalypto like area, which was definitely making yeah. assumptions about that kind of society that we don't actually know. But I do think that the leaders of these societies were able to mobilize large masses of people and a large human force can get a lot done yeah. a lot. So if what they needed was to keep these roads maintained and cleared for whatever the Royal activities were that were passing. Yeah notices and and important papers back and forth or whatever it was not papers i guess tablets (laughs) right but you know if that's what they needed was to have a a human force doing that then i I think they probably could have done that they could have recruited those people from the the ranks of the society and made that happen whether they were slaves or paid people or whatever i'm not really i mean i don't think we know that but but there's enough people that they could make that happen yeah all right speaking of a lot of people Let's find out why a lady was hanging out in a box with a bunch of other people in a box in the (laughs) University of Sheffield for the last couple of decades. Back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 205. And we're, again, going to find out why this 
woman was amongst these other collections at the University of Sheffield. <laughs> We're also going to find out why she worshipped anchors. And <laughs> I'm not, guessing it was a seafaring nope, not society. A thing, not a thing. Okay, we'll get to that None in a minute. None of that is accurate. All right, let's <laughs> talk about this. You are wrong. So, <laughs> so this article is called Mysterious Skeleton Revealed to be That of Unusual Lady Anchoress of York Barbican. <laughs> See? Right. So there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> so let's... Let's get this figured out. So, first of all, the University of Sheffield has a collection of 667 skeletons that were excavated at the former All Saints Church in York. And they date to basically like Roman times all the way through the English Civil War, which would be roughly like the mid 1600s, right? Now, these excavations were done in 2007 on the site of the York Barbican, which is where that name in the title of the article comes from, which is a music and indoor entertainment venue. And at that time period, it was being refurbished. It had Mm -hmm. it like started back in the 80s or whatever, but it closed down in the early 2000s and there was a big big renovation going on and these excavations were done at that time. Wow. I totally thought we were talking about something that was 400, 500 years old, but the York Barbican or is, York Barbican is a is, thing that it's, exists it's now. Currently, currently you can go see musicians and musical acts there. Yes. And this is in York, England. In York, in England. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Barbican. The I have to ask some of my British colleagues what the hell a barbican is. <laughs> I don't so. actually know what that word means. I didn't. Yeah, but I didn't look that up. But yeah. all right. So most of the skeletons were excavated in the associated cemetery outside of the church, right? But this one in particular that we're talking about here today was actually buried inside the church, Ooh. and it's believed to be Lady Isabel German, who was an anchoress, and I know that. Word is new and different, but we'll define it in a second. But she was an anchoress, and she lived at that church during the 15th century. So, like the, she was the 1400s. anchor of the church. Yeah, I mean, basically, I think that's oh. sort of what what the root of the word means. But <laughs> so, an anchoress is a religious hermit that lived in seclusion in a single room without any direct human contact, and was completely devoted to prayer and lived a hundred percent off of charity. So, like all the food, water, whatever that she had was coming from charity. Well, I think aside from devoted to prayer, you just described van lifers, <laughs> right? <laughs> And some are Oh, man. There's some van lifers out there that are going to be like, excuse me. And sometimes I have a job. (laughs) Sometimes we do that together. Like, can you live in seclusion together? Sometimes we just don't go outside. Uh, That's true. (laughs) Well, I kind of like. And we're I'm technically not sure. in a single room. I'm not sure it's a compliment or not, but like sometimes being mm-hmm. with you is like being alone, you know? Like <laughs> what's going on in the t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, okay, so this anchorous role is really interesting. I had never heard of it before, but the local community would have seen her as like this like really significant part of the local church. She was almost like a prophet to them, basically. Yeah. They never saw her or knew anything about her, knew what she looked like. They just would, you know, donate money or food or water or whatever to her to mm-hmm. keep her going. And she was just this, like, entity that was inside this room in the church that was separated from everybody. It's, like, wow. really crazy. It's almost like she has to be very pious and devout so the rest don't have to. Oh, maybe. <laughs> right. Like, that that could be part of it. Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. church stuff is weird, right? So, and yeah. in the mid-1400s, I guess that would be Catholic, right? Because we didn't have the Church yeah. of England split until the 1500s. Right. So, I think we're talking Catholic at this point. Mm. But 
That's a guess. So I'm not sure. Well, she was originally, when they did this excavation, she was documented as skeleton SK3870 mm-hmm. and was buried in a tightly crouched position in the apse of the church, which mm-hmm. is just a small room located behind the altar. Yeah. And you can see in the photograph, if you take a look at the link in the show notes, I mean, she really is just like squished up in this yeah, little hole. Yeah, like totally crunched up there. I wonder why that is. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I guess... Only the rich or very important would be buried inside the church like that. Like everybody else is buried outside in the cemetery where mm-hmm. everybody's buried. You know, that's, you know, to be buried inside the church, you have to be very special for that. And I, that is why they have decided that this burial is probably Lady German because mm. there's nobody else in this time frame who would be important enough basically for the church to allow them to be buried inside like this. But there was documentation, documentary evidence of her. Yes. She definitely yeah. existed. We know her name. We know she was there. We know that she right. was the anchoress for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder when they stopped having anchoresses. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's a really interesting like position to have yeah. in a church like that. Well, when I saw the burial photo, it, I really thought that she maybe had some sort of, you know, disease or, or degenerative, you know, deforming sort of disease that maybe Mm -hmm. would have you know made her bones do that she didn't really but she did have what revealed to be septic arthritis and advanced venereal syphilis yeah so yeah i mean like how did she get that but anyway (laughs) uh she it it said with those she would have lived with severe visible symptoms of infection affecting her entire body and later would have had neurological and mental health decline yeah wasn't living a super great life near the end there yeah and like we always like to provide links to these things. We have a link to the article that we found about this, but we also have the journal article, which is in medieval archaeology that is not open access. So you're going to only be able to see the abstract abstract and the figures, but it's still worth looking at. Like we Mm -hmm. always say, because the figures are really neat, but back to the, the visible diseases, you know, typically we think of people, as being kind of shunned by medieval society for having these visible diseases. Which we've talked about before. Yeah, we have talked about that. Yeah. So the question becomes, like, when did she become an anchoress? When did she get these diseases? Like, what is the order of operations here? Did she already have the diseases and decided to become an anchoress so that she could be hidden away from society? Mm-hmm. Or... Did she develop them after she became anchorous and nobody could see her anyway, so it didn't matter that she had them? Right. Or maybe she had them before and this was viewed as like sort of a martyr thing. So she was like a martyr from God and this visible disease is like punishment Mm. for your sins. And so she's like visibly being punished by God. Therefore, she's some sort of martyr. So I don't know. There's a lot of ways that you can kind of wonder or interpret how medieval society would have thought about her, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, but we don't know. We don't know. We don't have any documentation about that. We just know that she was the anchoress. You know, and maybe just like George Bailey's future wife, Mary Bailey, in the <laughs> alternate reality that he created by making a wish, maybe she just wanted to die an old maid yeah, and not have a husband, be control of her own life yeah. and, you know, devote her life to the church and to God. <laughs> Maybe, maybe she like looked at herself and was like, yeah, no, I'm not interested in, interested in mm-hmm. being controlled by a man and having a husband because that's what well, it meant. I mean, the one man was okay. 
Like God. <laughs> God. But other men. God is fine. But <laughs> a husband, not so much because he had control of not only your body, but also all of your possessions. Right. And maybe she was the kind of woman who was like, um, no, these are my things. This is my body. And I want to maintain control of it. So therefore, I'm going to devote it to God, mm-hmm. who is this figment who can't actually do anything physically to me. So like, that seems like a better trade. (laughs) So didn't uh, the research find that she was basically pretty well off too? Yeah. I mean, she had to have been rich in order to even be given this kind of a position to begin with. So like, it's an option that she had that other people who other women who are poor would not have had. Like you have to have money in order to even get a place like this. So Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Hmm. It makes me wonder, like, what would I choose, right? Like, if I were a woman of means in this time period and I wanted to maintain my autonomy and I knew that getting married would mean (laughs) that I would lose that autonomy. Right. Because, you know, menfolk... Like you right. would not be allowing to me to make my own decisions, you know, like, like what kind of choice is that to I live mean, in a, a room by yourself? I don't know. Listen, if we tow a van behind the RV, I think you're going to end up staying in there. <laughs> like you, you can come to the main house every once in a while. Oh my God. Well, but, that sounds uh, fine by me. Yeah. Oh, sounds, see, see, you're not I actually mean, sad about that. I mean, this sounds like I've got my autonomy there, so I don't know. And here's where the other shoe drops. We just kind of think it's her. Yes. We don't know for sure. There's yeah. no way to know. No. Unless there's somebody who can prove their ancestry to her and then we can pull DNA from the skeleton and then match that. But that is not a thing that has happened yet. So right now we're just making a lot of assumptions about that. Something tells me, given her life choices, that she didn't have a lot of offspring. No, but like her siblings could have. Sure. And then you could trace back through through that. But All right. Well, we got one more article. And when we come back, we're going to talk about why people in Miami love living over ancient Indian burial grounds. (laughs) We'll talk about that on the other side. Welcome back to episode 205 of the Archaeology Show. And this is our last segment. And we've mentioned on this show before, but Rachel and I... I mean, we didn't officially meet on this project. Right. We, we kind of met like a few weeks before that for like a day, but didn't really talk to each other. I don't mm-hmm. think I said two words to you on that project. I only remember on you because one. you drove the bug. Shut up. So <laughs> anyway, we met a few weeks later when some people from that project, including myself and you, went down to Miami, downtown Miami, on mm-hmm. what would be my first and your first like really, really long project. Yeah, first yeah. big excavation. First big yeah. excavation. We were down there for like six, seven months. Mm-hmm. And I think from early December, mid or mid to early December after Thanksgiving sometime. Yep. On to I don't I didn't leave until May. June. May May, May or June, June yeah. yeah. Yep. So anyway, we were working on one of the last undeveloped blocks in downtown Miami. Mm-hmm. This is north of the Miami River by like a block. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we constantly heard horns honking because whenever the bridge went up over the Miami River to let some fancy boat through, mm-hmm. uh, all the cars would just honk, assuming that that would make the bridge go down. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> it didn't. No, but it did not. But now, and, well, and we found uh, many, many, many human remains at that site, yeah. uh, dated to uh, anywhere from the Spanish that were there in the 1800s all the mm-hmm. way back 10,000 years to the Tequesta Indians. Yeah. So, and, and everybody that lived there in between. It was mm-hmm. just a place where you put all your people. Now, we've talked about this site before, so we're not going to really go through that much more. But yeah. the point is, on top of it now is a Whole Foods, well, yes. as a parking garage yep. and a Whole Foods yep. and a luxury condominium building. Yes. So, they're literally buried on an Indian burial ground. If you've ever seen the they movie are. The Poltergeist, you know, that's probably not a good plan. <laughs> so why do people in Miami keep wanting to live there? I know. Well, it's not only that. It's it's 
this this article that we found, it's called, Is Miami Really Going to Keep Letting Developers Pave Over Our Most Ancient Sites? Question mark. And it's an opinion piece. It's just published by, or the author credit is just the Miami Herald editorial board. So it's sort of like a group of people writing this or whatever. But the gist is like the Miami River, which is what mm-hmm. we were working on. That's the site that we were on. And it's the site of all of these other important archaeological sites. Yeah. It's it's super significant. It's it was occupied by humans for thousands and thousands of years, mm-hmm. and we know it's super significant. And yet, w- Miami as a city kind of keeps allowing the developers to sort of take the lead and do what they want. Yeah, and what they want is to build high rises for more people to live in downtown Miami. <laughs> right. So, right. so here's the 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 quick history of it. It started in 1998. The Miami Circle was discovered. And actually, the the land that the Miami Circle is on, they the city ended up buying it back from the developers and turning it into a park because yeah. they realized it was so significant. They've got this circle of post holes and like that kind of structure had not been found in this area before at all. And yeah. and it just showed, and it's very, very old. And it's just like the whole thing was just super significant as far as an, an archaeological site goes. And so they, they bought the site back. And the Miami Circle was a 2,000-year-old Tequesta Indian site. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, uh, I, I think if they'd known what else was around there, like maybe the Miami Circle wouldn't have been preserved. You know what I mean? But you can't know what everything is there until you just start no, doing development. you can't know. So... And like they did, but they could, they, they bought the land back and they turned it into what is, we were there, you and I, we were there. It's kind of a dumpy little dog park sort of right on the water, you know, no, I mean like there's almost no effort into making it into like some kind of public exhibit or educational display. None of that. You know, we knew it was there. We, we walked there knowing that it should be in this area. We found it and we did read the signs and it took a second to find it, but like, it's really like. You have to work to find that it's an archaeological site. Yeah. Yeah. Most people have no idea why it's a park, what's significant about it. They just know that they can take their dogs there, you know? Right. (laughs) So then a few few years later, this would be the the stuff that you and I worked on. Mm -hmm. So after the Miami Circle was turned into a park, it, you know, the next phase of development that happened in downtown Miami right on the river was by the development group MDM. And they started excavating. This is where you and I come in. And we worked on some of the properties that they were excavating for the, the development that they were doing down there. Yeah. And they, I mean, we were there in 2005 and six, right. But it took until 2014 for MDM to sort of come to an agreement with the city that they would create a small public display of artifacts and information about the sites that we were excavating as well as developing the land and And, building the structures. And we had heard that there would be like even some sort of small museum or something in the base of this condo building yeah, or maybe the whole foods. I don't know, but somewhere right right there where where they were doing all this stuff. But it's nine years after 2014. And mind you, we were there in 2006. Yes. And there's still nothing there. It's still nothing there. Yeah. yeah. And like we showed up there, what, like probably 2021 ish. And we we're like, oh, yeah. yeah, they must have done whatever they said they were going to do. It's been it. 15 years. Yeah. Nothing's happened. I mean, sure, they definitely managed to build all the condos they said they were going to build. Sure. We shopped and the, at the whole, whole Foods. Yep. The Whole Foods was built. They definitely got that done. But yeah. the display of archaeological artifacts and the like educational displays that were supposed to happen, none of that is there. Yeah. Now, this latest so. site is on the south bank of the 
of the Miami River, where the Miami, I mean, the Miami Circle is also on the south yes, bank. What yeah. we're talking about is on the north side. And that, they, that was where you and where I were. You it was on the north side. Yeah. 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 So we're back to the south side again. We're back to the south side and it's just west of the Brickell Avenue Bridge. And Brickell Avenue is a big, you know, thoroughfare that goes through there. Yep. It, it's very densely populated. That whole area is just full of high rises, mostly yeah. condos. Yes. With other businesses in the base of them. Yep. But so as you're walking down the street, you can see all these, you know, businesses and shops and, mm-hmm. you know, restaurants and stuff that we actually went to quite frequently when we were staying downtown. We did. And and it's condos above. And mm-hmm. it's just prime real estate down there I mean, because... I like... I remember because I worked on the south side of the bridge for a little while before I think it was before you got there I was on the south okay. side of the bridge and like there was a bank across the street that like would let us come in and use the bathroom so oh, we geez. would like because <laughs> we didn't have bathrooms or anything yeah. it was a very like shoestring budget kind of project and we would like run across the street to use yeah. the bathroom over there so well in the developer <laughs> the developer owned other properties down there too and that's why mm-hmm. we got some of the deals in the hotel yeah we that's true yeah because the first few months that we were there I, I don't know if you were you were there too at the jw marriott oh yeah i was there oh yeah, yeah. the jw yeah. marriott if you don't know like the jw means uh i don't well it's john Fucking w marriott. fancy as hell oh my god it was super fancy yeah. and like there was a guy in the elevator you know I mean it was super fancy and we just walk in like covered in covered mud covered in mud like if you look at if you take a close look at the picture click on the link in your show notes and I'll give you a second or just pause the podcast but if you look <laughs> at the show at the picture and you zoom in you'll see some people in high-vis clothing on the left hand side in front of the excavator there yeah. or in front of the, the front end loader now they've got this structure over the top of them and there's just tables all around I'm going to tell you what I think that is screening water screening water screening yeah so they must have a source of water <laughs> or they just dug down far enough and they're yeah. pumping it out that's what we did yep because we water screened everything because it is so muddy and mm-hmm. so gross down there you just water screening so is mucky. just yeah you're just literally spraying all the all the dirt with water through yeah. a screen and then whatever's left is a nice clean washed artifact yep. right and that's what looks like what they're doing and then behind that you can see some uh like almost like some elevated walkways and some other stuff where the actual excavation is happening so yeah yeah it's crazy so it's a filthy filthy muddy affair and we were walking half a mile down the street to our home the at the very JW, fancy marriott. jw marriott like we're in yeah. like i'm standing next to like a lady with her louis yeah <laughs> you know like headed yeah. up the elevator like don't mind me <laughs> it was ridiculous yeah. ridiculous it so was, it was a crazy situation at some point they moved us to the courtyard, courtyard, marriott. courtyard marriott yeah that's across the street from the excavation site, which is still there, by the way. Yeah. And there's a restaurant. Still there, really? I think so, yeah. yeah. And there's a restaurant down in the bottom of that. And in the morning, they had like a continental breakfast and like you can get actual breakfast too, but they had like orange juice and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget one of the guys on the crew. He was Australian, actually. I don't know if you remember him. I don't remember what his name Tyler. was. but Was it Tyler? Tyler. Anyway, he yeah. had like... You know, like a lot of archaeologists, his field clothes, you know, he had like some ripped up jeans. Everybody has ripped up jeans, yeah, you know, know, like some cutoff shirts or whatever. You got a whatever. bandana around your neck. Like yeah. Well, you know. he also had like neck tattoos. He did have neck yeah. tattoos. I and don't think he was Australian though, but go on. I thought I remembered him being Australian. I don't think but so. But anyway. It's been a while. I'll never forget when we were all down there just kind of eating and, you know, homeless people would come in all the time and the, the maitre d' or whoever would have to shoo him out. Well, somebody working in the restaurant like tried to shoo Tyler out and Tyler was like, dude, I live like, here. <laughs> <laughs> it was so we funny. looked like homeless people. We all did. I mean, <laughs> technically, I suppose we were homeless. We were just, yeah, you know, we lived at the courtyard. We, we lived at that hotel for yeah. the moment, but yeah. So it was it was quite the experience, like for all of us to. What it what it what was so like bonding about the experience though is that it was 
it was like a shoestring budget for sure. Yeah. And the developer, this is why I don't have a lot of sympathy for the developer in this situation because it seemed very clear to me as the employee that the developer was trying its best to get away with paying the least amount they yeah. possibly had to get this archaeology, you know, headache done. Yeah. They, they, they didn't care about how significant the site was and what we were finding and how important it was to the archaeological record in this area and how much information it could provide about this whole area and even potentially about like the peopling of the Americas, right? Like these yeah. are some of the oldest sites in the North Americas and like it's not this contested like mm -hmm. where did it come from kind of a thing. It's like no, they like legitimately were just here for this many thousands yeah. of years. So... I don't well, know. Like they just, they just clearly did not care. Well, and from one standpoint, like from a business standpoint, I could understand. I them. know. Well, I know. Hold on. I, I understand them not caring only because every day that we were out there, they're literally losing money. I know. Right? Like they're we literally cost, losing we money. We cost them millions of dollars. And, I definitely get that. And that money has to come out of somebody's pocket. Yeah. And it might be wealthy investors. Who knows? But you know, they're they're definitely losing money. So they have to think about that from just staying in business. Like if we're going to do this and even pay us to do it, yeah. they have to stay in business. So from that standpoint, where the process breaks down is that I feel like I feel like it should almost be government run and government funded where mm -hmm. a developer says, I want to develop this property and sure they need to have some skin in the game, but it, it almost, it's almost like their timeframes should not be contingent upon us getting done because that rushes the archeology. span yeah. It rushes us and it, it causes it to get done, you know, in a, in a, in a shoddier way sometimes because you just don't have the budget to do it the right way. And, yeah. and it's because the driver is the commercial aspect of it. Yeah. And and it's going to be. They're going to be still sitting there going, can we bring in bulldozers yet? Yeah. But maybe they're just not losing money every single day that that's happening. Yeah. You know? So I don't know how to make that an equitable sort of thing to do. But. Yeah. I don't know. Because I, I mean, I'm like you. I don't want to stop the like the the march of development you know yeah. like it is what it is and and i'm not i'm not here to stop that but i do think that history and archaeology needs to be properly documented and yeah. there's a part of me that kind of wonders is if it was done as good as it could have been right i know we did the best we could when we were there but i feel like we could have done better too had we been yeah. given more time and more resources and more of everything so yeah. and i i think that's probably the same with a lot of places that are feeling that time crunch but but, you know, getting back to what they're doing now yeah. and why this opinion piece is actually being written at this moment is because archaeologists have been like sort of quietly excavating <laughs> this <laughs> new area for the last 16 months. I didn't even know about it. Yeah, I don't think. And so, again, it's very significant. They're finding stone tools, plant and animal remains, human remains, and also evidence of structures. And the evidence of structures is the part that yeah. makes me go, ooh. Like, that's very right. interesting. People were, like, setting up camp here. They were really living here. So that mm -hmm. is definitely significant. Yeah, and the oldest tool that they found to date, which would have been a stone tool, is mm -hmm. uh, around 7,000 years ago, which is a lot older than Miami Circle. Yeah, much so older. We're definitely finding some some very ancient stuff here and, and some of the some of the earliest people to have lived in this area. Yeah, and it just shows that the Miami River has been continuously occupied for thousands of years, far long, far longer than we previously thought. And that that big picture is what makes this area so interesting and so important. And yeah, I yeah. know development is also important and we can't stop a city from growing the way that it needs to. Like we have people who need housing in the city. Like I totally understand that. You can't right. stop that from happening. But there's got to be this balance between 
preserving our past to allow our future to go forward mm-hmm. because our future needs to know about the past. It's, it just feels really important to me that like the citizens of Miami and the people living there, like they don't know, they don't yeah. know that they're living on top of an Indian burial ground, well, you know? And a lot of them may not care because a lot of people in Miami, like a lot of big cities, especially on the East coast, most of the people that are there are probably not from there, especially the ones downtown. Well, maybe, but you, you should know? still care. Well, you should. You should but... still care about the people that lived on the land before you. Right. And and to know their history. And you know what? Actually, I'll take that back. Even if you don't care, that's fine. You don't have yeah. to care. But there will be some people around you that do care. And there should at least be something, a public display, a museum, a something that tells you about them. And Miami is doing a garbage job of getting that information out to the public right now right the miami circle is a disappointment yeah as a park as an archaeological park it's a disappointment it's protected and i appreciate that but it's a disappointment from a public outreach perspective yeah and and mdm has not gone forward with any of the stuff that they promised to do sure and now this new company what are they going to do? How yeah. are they going to show the people of the area yeah. what they're destroying in order to create these buildings? I so know. Well, the city needs to hold the developers accountable, and that's all I'm going to say. Okay, then. Well, <laughs> I feel very strongly about that. All right. So after that, <laughs> if everybody listening to this podcast would share this to another person, and maybe that person shares it to another person, yeah. then maybe somebody in Miami on this project will eventually hear it and be like, hey, maybe we should care about this stuff. Maybe not. Maybe but, not. You know. Well, I mean, I know all the archaeologists care about it. It's well, the, they don't matter. The people that make the rules that yeah. the that do the development, those are the ones that need to care. And yep. they they don't seem to. So All right. Well with that, we're gonna have more tequila and tacos because that's every day here. It is. It's a taco kind of life <laughs> on the beach <laughs> here. Right. Also, right. I'm I mean, I know it's kind of late to say this now, but I I feel like my voice is really going right now, and yeah. I've, I've been fighting the cold all week long. So. I know. We've been delaying recording the show, trying to wait, wait for you to get better, but I know. we can't delay anymore. <laughs> I know. So. So my voice is not at its peak right now, so my apologies for that, yeah. but hopefully I'll be back good and strong next week. All right. With that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.